Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Game of Thrones on HBO. Game of Thrones has critics raving that the final season is, quote, the biggest show on TV, era-defining, and TV's greatest show of all time. For your Emmy consideration in outstanding drama series and all other categories, visit hbo.com slash FYC for more on Game of Thrones. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, she also doesn't trust short people. It's Amanda Dobbins. Hello. Man, okay, so Amanda's here. We're going to talk about Big Little Lies. She is the co-host of Big Little Live, our after show for Twitter for Big Little Lies. It'd be weird if it was called Big Little Live, but it was actually about Thrones. That's true. I've almost <laughs> said, like, talk the Thrones more than once just because I've heard you say it so many times. Also, frankly, like, learning to say Big Little Live instead of Big Little Lies. It's tough. I had to practice that alone in the shower at home. But there's so much to be done with the Big Little construction. Yes. There's literally no end of things that you could do. I told Juliet earlier today that I wanted to have a segment on the show with any another guy mm-hmm. who's shorter than 5'9". I list it 5'9", but yeah. if I'm being honest, it's okay. not that's not really what's going on with me. Uh, and have a segment called Big Little Guys. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> How would the Big Little Guys respond to Meryl Streep's accusation in episode one? I mean, Honestly, I was pretty intimidated. Okay. I was pretty intimidated by her directness. I want to talk to you about a couple of different things. So Big Little Lies obviously debuted on Sunday. You can catch Amanda and Mina Kimes after every East Coast airing, mm-hmm. after the East Coast airing of Big Little Lies on Sunday. Big Little Live goes live on Twitter. I thought the first show was Dynamite. Oh, thank you so much. You came in... Real hot. Well, there's only one way to do an after yeah. show. <laughs> and But the thing is, is that uh, you really did identify something that I think this show gets so right, which is after watching the Deadwood movie, which I, I love very much, after watching the last season of Game of Thrones, which everybody had their ups and downs with, thinking a lot about fan service and mm-hmm. the idea of like, you know, like what do you really want from these things, especially when it's been so fully established what people's relationship to the characters are. And I thought you identified something specifically with Meryl that was really, really smart, which is that, like, Meryl seems to know she's on Big Little Lies. Yes. But is not sacrificing the performance to do it. Yeah, it's—she's in on the joke while also making the joke better. Yes. If you will. And something that's so interesting about fan service and Meryl being on this show— I hesitate to say this, like, on the watch so close after Game of Thrones, but um, <laughs> this this season two is going past the source material. Yeah. Uh, the first season of Big Little Lies was based on a novel by Leanne Moriarty, mm-hmm. and one season, one book. That's how it worked. And there is no sequel to Big Little Lies as written by Leanne Moriarty. So it was originally supposed to be a limited series, and because it was successful and because it won a lot of Emmys, they decided to make another season. Mm-hmm. And so they were immediately starting uh, deciding to go like beyond the book, beyond the charted territories. Yeah. And I know that in some cases recently that has not gone that well. But I think in this case it's just brought like a level of intention to the show yeah. of we're doing this because we liked it the first time around and we know what we liked about it and we know what worked and we know what fans want. And someone like Meryl Streep, who was not in the first season, is Coming in as a fan, more sure. or less. I mean, she's also coming in because she's Meryl Streep, and I'm sure they like paid her a lot. And but she famously or was like, "I don't need to see the script. Yeah, like I, I'm just down to be in Big Little Lies. Like, let's work it out." Right, because 
presumably she liked watching Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Kidman, Shailene Woodley, Laura Dern, and Zoe Kravitz like hang out and kind of yell at each she other. She wasn't. She wasn't like. Adam Scott, that's why. No. Die, I mean, die in to work with Adam Scott. Maybe. <laughs> but it seemed like she just wanted to be a part of the show yeah. and hang out with those women and get to do what they're doing. And so I think that that does inform her performance. Yeah. And I thought the thing that the, the first episode did really well, it was like, yes, there are some like slow-mo, everybody gives each other a hug at the school dropping off and like we're all back together. Yeah. But it did a really good job of not necessarily playing into weird like... You, we need to give you this because this is what you want. And also, I thought that there was some nice character development. There was some nice, like, people had obviously changed between, so what's the guess here is for, it's like another, is it the summer? Yes, I okay. think, so the gala that was the finale of season one where things went quite wrong, mm-hmm. and then Alexander Skarsgård character died, was, I believe, at the end of the school year. And then this is, and that was first grade. And so they're starting second grade. Not to get too technical here, but do you think it's, we're talking, this is summer 18? When they filmed it or when it's supposed Just to Just had a hard time imagining uh, Zoe Kravitz spending the whole summer in Tahoe with all the fires, you know, because somebody who had to yes. go to Tahoe, we went to Tahoe, it was kind of like, it was pretty smoky over there. I mean, it could be summer 18. I think Zoe Kravitz spending the whole summer in Tahoe after <laughs> she's been complicit in a crime and they're covering it up and then like, no one thought to check on her at all yeah. was also kind of strategically a questionable choice. Sure. I, summer 18 is fine with me. The main noticeable aspect of like time in the episode for me was how quickly everyone's hair grew. Oh, yeah. And you can also see the kids were a bit older than three months, which That's makes a lot gonna of sense. That's always going to be the hard, t- the hard thing, yeah. Yeah, because this show aired in February 2017, so it's like almost two years since we saw them in first grade and now they're in second grade. It's like, it requires a leap of faith. Sure. But I think they have nice haircuts and everyone is— uh, Ziggy has a cool haircut. He, yeah. He's going to be the brand Stark of this whole thing, <laughs> where he's going to be like— he just like gets pr- like really old. Yeah. And then is like, I'm actually the mayor of Monterey. Right, and also young Sheldon. Yeah, that's right. Um, let's talk a little bit about Meryl. So obviously she is the thing that changes the entire dynamic of the show. She's both brings a very different energy. You know, like when Mm -hmm. she first started talking, I was like, so she wearing prosthetic teeth probably? Yes, they are fake teeth. I was like, man, this is a choice, but it's a good choice. It really does work. And I like how, um, how confrontational her appearance and her performance is with the established sort of codes of conduct among the characters on the show where mm-hmm. it's just like she's so almost like lacks the social graces that these people think they have even though they don't have a lot of social graces. Yes. And she is really, she suspects the social graces as well. So she is an audience stand-in sort of in the sense that she immediately confronts Madeline mm-hmm. and immediately is also like something is afoot here. Like I don't believe what you told me. Sure. Which is necessary because it was totally implausible, the ending of the first season, which is, again, why I'm really glad they have a second season because he dies and it seems like they all agree to keep the secret and they're just like frolicking on a beach. Yeah, right. And that's it. And so she is serving that function of like, are we sure? Mm-hmm. I also credit David e. Kelly for writing the short people theory. but <laughs> <laughs> And for being so difficult and gross and kind of a satire of a certain type of helicopter mom or indulgent mom and a suburban experience and also a mother-in-law. I mean, as a mother-in-law send up, this is like truly everyone's worst nightmare. Uh Uh-huh. So she's both serving an important plot point and just really, like really a pain in everyone's ass instantly. Yes. And 
is get it does it does a couple of things that were like I thought very very like on the nose like when she confronts the kids when they're flipping out in the back seat and she's just like you know you need to respect your mother that's why the sun shines on her and then obviously the dinner scene which had sort of <laughs> echoes of I think it's the I don't think it's the pilot, but it, really early in Six Feet Under, there's like the the Italian grief thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I thought that that Meryl thing about like, I, I, is my grief too loud for you is kind of like reminded me of that. <laughs> but that's just such a perfect, like you wouldn't even be able, that, that has to be drawn from some experience because you wouldn't be able to make that up. No, it's true. It also, her performance is so quiet throughout the rest of the episode, like actually literally quiet. Mm-hmm. She speaks in a low volume and I, like, I'm a huge Devil Wars Protestant, so I mentioned it in the show last night, but it reminds me a lot of the kind of low menace performance that she does in that, which is like power by making people draw into you. Yeah. She said she based that performance on Clint Eastwood, by the way, which is the hilarious. Devil Wars Prada one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Clint Eastwood, also famously the mayor of Carmel, which is next door to Monterey. It's all coming together yeah. for me, the extent expanded Meryl universe, but it also makes that scream so much funnier because she really just is at a low volume throughout the episode and then like an astonishingly loud, like like dog, yeah. high-pitched level scream. Yeah. Amazing. And an instant meme. It's already like people are already putting the A Star is Born Gaga wailing into it. Yes. Which they had to, you, which you had to know was coming. <laughs> yeah. That's how the internet works. And in a way, I think it's very smart because they are stocking the episode with things that are going to be internet friendly. But it, it was crucial because I think that if you had just kept the same Monterey 5 and you had just done, you know, Reese does something where she oversteps her boundaries or Renata does something where she's wound up too tight or Zoe Kravitz like makes kombucha or whatever, it would have been fine. But like Meryl adds not only dramatic tension, which Mm -hmm. is what they absolutely probably were searching around in the dark for, and I don't think they could have just done it with Skarsgård Ghost the entire time of, like, I'm just sort of haunted by all of this. They needed, like, a antagonist to come in and do that, and it it was sort of an ingenious way of slipping it in there. I completely agree. Here's my question for you, and we talked a bit about this on the preview show, but what does Meryl do? Does she break good? Does she kill someone? Like, what's the— where do you think it's going to go? And I have no idea. I have only seen the first episode, so I'm so not spoiling I. anything. Yeah. But, you know, there is a rule in movies, and I think now in TV shows, but someone of Meryl Streep's caliber only agrees to take a role if they get to do something fun. I think that ultimately, at the end, it will probably wind up where the first season wound up, which is everybody as friends, but not before a lot of drama. Yeah, my, I think ultimately, like, she has to be confronted by the reality of what her son was, and she will come to accept that. That seems like where this would go, unless it's just like, you're goddamn right he's like this, I made him that way, you right. should have been thankful for everything he gave you. Yeah, I saw some speculation today that also maybe she dies. Oh. Which you could see, I think Meryl Streep would it would play that scene well, sure. you know? sure. I don't know. I th- I just think you're right that she is such a necessary antagonist and they could not have done this season without her. And in many ways, like there is a second season so they could have Meryl Streep mm-hmm. on it, which is, I think, like the best TV decision making like, yeah. ever in history. They could have done a second season that's just Reese running around selling houses. Like they could have gotten away with an extension of the vibes from the first season, but there wasn't it. There wouldn't be no drama to that. Yes. And so I, that's exactly right. I think that Meryl means like a heightened amount of drama. Yeah. I think this will probably be a bit more of soap opera-y of a season mm-hmm. than last season. I'm okay with that. Oh, yeah. I mean, the thing is, what's funny is, like, we've I was mentioning Game of Thrones and Deadwood, and obviously those two shows were completely different and made under much different circumstances, so I in no way mean this as a critique. 
but you can feel the confidence with which Big Little Lies was made. Mm-hmm. Like you can, it was even telling to me that it was what forty four minutes. I think it was like forty. 41. Yeah, like so in and out. Like mm-hmm. they they didn't have to waste a lot of time. They knew exactly what they were doing. They already have the setting. They already have all the locations. They already have all the gestures that they're going to make. And it's so economical in that way. Like, it probably could have been even shorter. But it, I, I thought that, you're right, like, the way they'll have, like, not just B-plots, but D and E-plots, like, where at, like what Abigail decides to do. <laughs> and typically, I think what we have is, like, a little bit of a, like, well, how does that all tie together? Yeah. How will this all... But I don't think that stuff's... I think that's just, like, interesting shit to watch on Sunday night is, does Abigail want to go to college or not? It's my favorite type of TV, which is just, like, it's meant to be enjoyed. Yes. And I think it has ideas, and it's really well made. This season is directed by Andrew Andrew Arnold, Arnold. and it's still written by David E. Kelly. And it has possibly the most Oscar winners per TV show. Oh, I would imagine. Or, like, Oscar wins, if you're counting all of them. So I don't mean to undermine it when I say it's pleasurable. I think that it's doing everything that it does, like, extremely well. But— you're right that there isn't that burden of either storytelling or outside forces or even just are we going to make the finest television sure. show ever yeah. made. It's <laughs> like we all liked doing this yeah. and we're going to do it again. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like uh, – I think that they are doing a good job of cross-stitching different relationships where they're like showing showing Adam Scott interacting with a variety of different people and they're showing <laughs> – yeah, you know, like even like having Shailene off at the Monterey Aquarium, which is also like just a perfect place to put Shailene Woodley anyway. Yes. It's just like <laughs> explaining how the octopus yeah, is made. Definitely and then kill have each this other. haircut and tell yeah. me about about disguising oh yourself as a predator. <laughs> that guy who's the like the surfer dude who mm-hmm. also works at the aquarium, he was on uh Big Love, right? Yes. Julia Lemon was really excited about that. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about Abigail. So Catherine okay. Newton. She's on the society, so I've spent a lot of time with Catherine Newton, 10 hours with her this mm-hmm. year already. She really comes with, like, I'm listening to late period Portishead on my laptop and making these life decisions. <laughs> um, really good foil for Maddie, though. Yeah, I don't know who's right in that argument, which is why you know that it's good. And we, like, we talked about this on the show, and we were actually arguing each side. And I was supposed to argue Madeline's side because I love Reese Witherspoon mm-hmm. more than anything else in the world. And Mina Kimes was arguing Abigail. But then by the end, I was kind of arguing Abigail's side because they both make some valid points. Sure. I think it's important to take advantage of the opportunities that are presented to you in this life, including college. Yeah. I think also that homeless people are important and you shouldn't like yell <laughs> about them at the top of your lungs. Yes. Reese Witherspoon, well, Madeline, Reese Witherspoon wouldn't do that. It's a really good mother-daughter story. Yeah. You know, and I have maybe not been in that particular fight, but I've been in so many like them, and I think anyone with a parent has yeah, in some and way I think or another. The, like, I like how much Madeline has, like, is gripping the wheel tight, very literally, in mm-hmm. her road rage moments. But that's, like, a really excellent, like, way to spend your time is just to watch different people sort of chip away from her level of control that she has over everything. Yes. The Andrea Arnold thing you mentioned, I just bring it up. I honestly, I, I want to have like a more constructive thing to say about it, but it seemed relatively seamless. In fact, I was kind of happy not to have as many Jean-Marc Vallée cutaways to to sand footprints, although there were a few in there. There were 
are a few. I mean, running as a way to deal with grief and unresolved issues is like the major theme of this movie and of this show. I'm sorry. And it's like last season it was Shailene Woodley and this episode one, there's Bonnie running through the forest trying to end everyone staring out at the ocean. In their defense, it's a very beautiful ocean. It is. I do want to say I'm not wild about Bonnie's gait. I think that that... You you have some like technical notes for her? Bonnie does a lot of like high motor, like... I just don't feel like she knows what to do with her arms. And I'm, I have no doubt that that's because she's like sort of running on a decline in the forest. So she's probably like, right, I'm yeah, bracing you've myself. Right, you got to put the arms out like wings. To kind yeah, of- but I feel like even in the time between when she runs up on Skarsgård in the first season mm-hmm, to push him mm-hmm. and and now in the, in the Redwoods sure. jogging scene, something happened in Tahoe to change her, her running style. And I'm worried for her knees. Yeah. I'm concerned about the times she's putting up. Like I'm worried. I think we could get her a better, a better time in the three mile or whatever she's doing. It seems like she's moving pretty quickly. Sure. Yeah. Here's one thing I'm going to say, though Meryl Streep did not point it out in last night's episode. Zoe Kravitz, also a shorter person. Yeah. So I don't. We don't really know what. So the only trustworthy people here are Dern, right? (laughs) Is Shailene supposed to be normal height? I think Shailene's probably taller, and Nicole Kidman's obviously quite tall. Yeah. So I, I. It'll be interesting to see whether Meryl Streep or Mary Louise, as she is known on this show, actually holds to that theory while confronting her own daughter-in-law. Yeah. But, yeah, that, the short women thing is the funniest thing that's happened on TV all year. The relationship between the show and what, but just to circle back to fan service to wrap it up, though, I thought that was best exemplified with Reese starting to sell houses. I honestly couldn't believe that I didn't write that. And I don't mean to take credit for yeah. David E. Kelly is a TV genius, and I'm just a person who watches TV, like, <laughs> occasionally. Yes. So I don't mean that anyway, but it's just in understanding what I am interested in as a person who loves this show enough to do an after show about it. And making that happen, I was shocked. Yeah. I guess I don't regularly receive fan service. And I was like, wow, is this what it feels like? Is this what you guys feel like all the time when they just put superheroes on the movie screen? No, it's like, for me, it's more like when they announce they're going to make Triple Frontier. Okay. I'm like, wow, someone's been reading my dream journal. I think you felt that while we were watching Triple Frontier. Yeah, yeah. There was definitely moments. But- you were just like eating a Twix and being like, Metallica, <laughs> yes. <laughs> And you shared your tricks with me. So that was really nice. We saw it together. Yes, I did. My favorite bit is just like Madeline's AirPods etiquette. (laughs) I was so mad about this. Yeah. And her just being like, I'm on the I'm on the phone even but like I guess she's doing so well in Monterey that she can just afford to like alienate her customers. So I actually don't think she's sold a single house. (laughs) Because number one, I don't. Because she just started this over the summer, and okay. it takes a while to sell houses. And she also says when she's in the real estate office with Merrill that they also handle rentals. Yes. So I kind of Her think and Oren are yes, the two Oren. people who handle rentals. So knowing what I know about her real realtor skills at yes. the showing, and also the staging in that apartment, it was not what it it's should pretty be. pretty spare. Yes. I mean, which I guess for a rental, that would be fine. But if you're— if it's an ocean view home in Monterey that's on the market for It doesn't sale, need to look like a bank robber's house. Yeah. It, just, it would have furniture in it. Yeah, yeah. But so knowing what I know about her skills and also just the timeline, I do not think that she's selling houses like hotcakes. I think that that was part of her first day of school. Like, I did it. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a successful career woman, too, now. Yeah, she's showing off her plumage. Yes. She's just like, check out what I've been up to. Yes. Do you think that this show will ultimately be about— not atoning, 
But like, what do you think is like the, because I think that like when when you watch a lot of stories, you're like, this is what needs to happen because dramatically and sort of emotionally, it will make sense for there to be some sort of reckoning. Obviously, there's like the concern that Bonnie is going to go to the cops. Mm -hmm. There's still the detective who Laura Dern had a great line about the detective, but the detective they seem to think is not on the case. She knows Susie Burke at IBM. Yes, is quite, quite still on the case. And then there's Merrill investigating this. Do you think that there is a perspective as somebody who's read Leanne Moriarty and is now only guessing what involvement she had in plotting out the second season? What is in the Leanne Moriarty universe, like usually the conclusion of something like this? Is it somebody gets, is there justice? Is it kind of like more of a, okay, this is what happened and we're kind of reckoning with it? Bad things don't, I mean, bad things happen in Leanne Moriarty novels, and then there's always resolution. So it is much closer to season one. I think the issue with the season one resolution is that it just happened very quickly, like quite literally in the span of 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, There's usually an epilogue. I love Leanne Moriarty. I think that her novels are just like very smart social observation about, they're all set in Australia, Mm -hmm. just FYI, but they are still like immensely readable traditional novels that have resolution. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's typically an epilogue like a year later and like so-and-so is doing this. And I think they will have gotten away with it. So for season two, knowing what I know about Leanne Moriarty, I think that there's going to be some other shoe to drop, whether it's another death or some other big revelation. There's going to be, I don't think it would be all about resolution and healing. Yeah. Just because she has an appreciation for plot yeah. and has an appreciation for like characters doing things. You so can I, tell that too, because like, they're just really good at, yeah. they've made this world in which they all have to meet face to face because you don't want to put it in Gmail. Right. And like all that stuff that Bonnie's like, it didn't seem like you cared about me when I was in Tahoe. And she's like, I'm not going to email you about a conspiracy <laughs> to like cover up a, a federal crime. I, I like that they're always yeah. in parked cars or going to each other's houses. It's old school TV stuff, but they've created a world in which that is a really fun reality. Right. I think I was also really surprised after the first episode. I assumed that season two would be about tying up all the loose ends Uh of season one and particularly Celeste and Jane, who are characters who have gone through a lot, kind of working through their trauma. And like I said, you know, lots of therapy scenes and kind of because parts of season one were really heavy and dealt with like really serious issues. And I kind of assumed because I as a viewer knew that that all the characters would know that and this season two would just be like about working (laughs) through things and it's really interesting that they are all in the denial phase Yeah. so I realized that season two might be about like what resolution means to them and also to characters and to a TV show which I think is an interesting pursuit it super is okay so I'll we'll try not to take too much advantage of your time but have you back sometime during this season to talk more about it you can watch Amanda and Mina on Big Little Live after the East Coast airing of Big Little Lies on Twitter. Nailed it. Thanks. Thank you. Amanda, thank, thank you for coming you, Chris. by. Thanks again to Amanda Dobbins for talking to me about Big Little Lies. You can watch her on Big Little Live on Twitter after the East Coast airing of Big Little Lies on Sundays. I'm going to take a quick break. And when I come back, Jason Concepcion on X-Men Dark Phoenix and the debacle that it was. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by City on a Hill the action-packed new drama series from Showtime, the same network that brought you Billions, Homeland, 
and Ray Donovan. Set in a volatile early 90s era, Boston when police corruption ran rampant through a system plagued by racism. City on a Hill stars award-winning actors Kevin Bacon and Aldous Hodge. The new series follows an upstanding district attorney played by Hodge who teams up with a corrupt FBI agent played by Bacon. The two form an unlikely alliance to take down a local crime family and clean up the city. Executive produced by Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, and Tom Fontana to stream the first episode for free. Go to show sho.com slash city. City on a Hill airs Sundays at nine only on Showtime. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Just Crack an Egg. Are you wanting to put the heat back into your relationship with breakfast? A hot breakfast can seem like too much work, but not when you head over to the egg aisle and pick up Just Crack an Egg. Just Crack an Egg is a hot, fluffy breakfast scramble that'll have you falling in love with hot breakfast all over again. Simply crack a fresh egg over their hearty breakfast fixins, then stir, microwave, and reignite your love of breakfast in less than two minutes. Something else you'll love about Just Crack an Egg, it has no artificial flavors, dyes, or preservatives. Plus, it comes in seven different varieties, including Veggie Denver Southwest style, protein-packed, and all-American. I have tried Just Crack an Egg, and it re- it did reignite it. It was like, here's the match, set it to the flame of breakfast, and now with my protein-packed scramble, life's just that much better. Don't wait for the weekend to add a little hot, hearty breakfast love to your AM. It's time to run with your arms wide open to the egg aisle and take breakfast back with Just Crack an Egg. All right, joining me now on the phone is Jason Concepcion. Obviously, I'd love to have Jason in the studio, but he has his own version of the legacy virus. So he was nice enough yes. to stay separate from me and Kaya today. But a little cold can't stop Jason from throwing more cold water on the X-Men franchise. I went on the big ah. picture and talked about this with Sean last week. But then this weekend, actually, it was almost... Um, I can't remember the last time I've seen people jump ship on a movie publicly yeah. this fast. So not only was the Rotten Tomato score just absolute dog shit and it made much less than expected and his stance to lose upwards of, I think, $100 million at least. But Sunday, we had a piece in Deadline about the box office returns and then oh. Boris Kitt today in The Hollywood Reporter wrote a piece. The headline, <laughs> Jason, for this piece, quote, We were wrong. We were wrong. You hate to see it. If you're going to make, <laughs> if you're going to spend $350 million on a movie, the thing you don't want on a Monday is for the Hollywood trades to run a piece about you Brutal. with a quote, We were wrong. Were they wrong? You saw Dark Phoenix. What was your take? I mean, my take is from reading these pieces is, first of all, there were certain structural issues that made it very difficult for this movie, I think, made it more difficult than it should have been for this movie to succeed. There's the Disney-Fox merger that uh, made it so this movie was like a kind of weird orphan. Yeah. The decision to combine uh, what should have been two scripts into one script and one movie uh, midway through the production process made it strange. Uh, the fact that they couldn't just, they really, and you can tell this from watching the movie, the fact that they really didn't have any idea how it was supposed to end until they tested like an ending where Jean Grey dies. Yeah. This is a movie where there are a race of aliens headed up by Jessica Chastain Mm -hmm. who are the villains, I guess. Yep. And I really have no idea what they want. Why are they here? Right. Why are they trying to kill Jean Grey or help her? What, like, I don't, but it also, make, their yeah. arrival on the scene just being like, they pick the most bougie 
outdoors, right? like furnished by anthropology barbecue in the world and just jump Jessica Chastain's dinner party and inhabit her body and her and her ability. Like, by the way, spoilers if you haven't seen Dark Phoenix, but it sounds like yeah. if you were going to see it, you probably already saw it and are listening to this podcast. And if you're not, I hope you enjoy it anyway. Jessica Chastain's main power is that she's able to like crush people's stomachs. So we've got this advanced alien race. They travel light years across the galaxy uh, after this cosmic force, which, you know, if uh, people familiar with the comics will know is the Phoenix Force. And then when they get to Earth, all they can do is just like punch people and grab their stomachs like that. Yes. That's the weapon. That's the advanced weaponry of this race. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what a strange film. It's it's symbolic, um, though, of a larger problem that I think you're getting at, which is that there are traces of the Dark Phoenix saga that we know and love from the comic books in yeah. the movie. Like, they are like, oh, yeah, right. So this is supposed to be this weird power dynamic between Gene and Charles Xavier. And, you know, we've got a little bit of her love story with Cyclops. We've got a little bit of her being... Um, basically gaslit by some villains into thinking that like right. her powers are actually too great for the the restrictions that the X-Men put on them and that she could be the most powerful mutant of them all. And she gets kind of seduced into this becoming a, a villain herself to some extent. There's little bits and pieces of that in this movie, but it's it's just sort of fascinating that in 2019 you can still see a, a major studio get scared of its own shadow like that and then be like, no, 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 no. We need to make this way more about fights. Right. You know, it's interesting because I think one of the one of the things that really, that Marvel kind of figured out when they locked their formula in was a way to stay true to what the essence of their characters were, to just kind of, uh, to not be afraid of how to project those characters onto the film screen and to audiences that maybe you weren't super versed mm-hmm. in that lore to not be afraid of, of colorful costumes, et cetera. And like, and I think strangely like Fox learned like the wrong lessons of that, which was to like, okay, well let's put the aliens in it. And Jean Grey, uh, you know, encounters the Phoenix force when they uh, go up in a space shuttle up into space. I don't think that that necessarily is, the right way to do it. I think also the fact that you're talking about like how many timelines do the X-Men franchise? Uh, I mean, Sean and I tried point. to kind of break it down, but yeah, I mean, they did, they definitely had a reset movie with days of future past that wiped away the original three movies with Hugh Jackman, uh, right. Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart, but still like didn't really make anything of, of note really from that the ashes of that like that reset they just made apocalypse which was uh, also plagued wow. by reshoots and and is one of the campiest stupidest movies ever and yeah. then you see what happened with dark phoenix which in some ways isn't even isn't even campy enough to be like a bad good movie or a good bad movie yeah. it's just it's yeah, just kind so, of drab it's so cheerless yeah it's so grim you know i i think this is this really is a franchise in desperate need of a reboot. I, I keep thinking of like when the Avengers movies started with, um, or when rather the, the MCU movies kicked off with Iron Man. They pulled a lot of that DNA from the Ultimate Marvel line, which was like a relaunch of 
Avengers, X-Men, and various other, uh, of Spider-Man. And so can, can you just, for people who don't know, can you explain a little bit about what that, what happened there or what that was? Sure. It was like a parallel line of comics called the Ultimate Universe. And they basically took their most uh, popular characters and teams and just rebooted them for the early aughts when, when the line launched. Um, and you know, you just get to, you get to update the characters, you get to kind of cast off a lot of the, uh, multi-timeline baggage, you get to start fresh and they got to do that. I think that's kind of the, and the Avengers movies pull a lot of their DNA from that. And I think X-Men could really, could really stand for that. And I think one of the other things is like, you know, like a core, one of the things I loved about the X-Men, they were my favorite comic book team and why they spoke to me so you know, so strongly was, um, you know, the metaphor of the core metaphor of the X-Men is like that diversity. Mm -hmm. Um, the X-Men are cast outs. They're, you know, they're, uh, the government is hunting them. People don't like them because of who they are. Um, and I think that that is a theme that is just as relevant as ever, but also like much more complex to really pull off now, I think. Right. I like, uh, like I, I think about some of the storylines that has happened in like the last 10 years where it's like, you can really look at some of Magneto's points now and be like, actually, he's kind of right. Yeah. Like the Sentinels were a government program. You know what I mean? Like when he's like, Charles, why are you trying to fit in with these people when you're trying to prove yourself to the humans who are like literally hunting you? They sent a giant, uh, sentinel to genosha and killed like 20 million mutants and no and the avengers never came nobody came to help why are you trying to prove yourself to these people that's essentially right and i think that's a much more complex kind of thing to pull off now yeah and i think that that's something that the various resets that this franchise has had without ever stopping down and honestly without yeah i mean you can see it in in the hollywood reporter piece where you know, this is this is a franchise that's been played. And initially, you know, it was was run by Brian Singer, who was sort yep. of agnostic about the comics, banned them from the set, wanted it to feel completely different. Which, you know, you could make the argument that the first two movies are very very good, so maybe he had a point there. But as superhero films became a larger and larger and now dominant part of pop culture, to not really fully engage with that was obviously a mistake. The behind-the-scenes people working on it, there is a little bit of a revolving door, but you have a lot of Simon Kinberg. Lauren Schuler Donner yeah. worked up to a point, although she tweeted this weekend, like, don't give me any of your condolences. Like, I haven't worked on an that X-Men movie. And that's wild. Like, Lauren Schuler Donner yeah. is not, like some uh, guy who works at Barstool. Like, she pop yeah. her popping off is a pretty significant disavowal of this Tweeted whole thing. Tweeted and deleted. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, basically, like, them letting everybody know, like, yeah, you know, Kimberg wrote two movies here, yeah. and they made him make it into one, and they moved this crucial move off of the February release date that they really wanted, but they gave that to Alita Battle Angel because they didn't want to piss off James Cameron. And I think that you can kind of sense that Fox knew that this title was going to become part of the MCU and that there was a, maybe not as much in it for them to keep it propped up. But what's wild yeah. is like you watch Phoenix and you're like, oh man, this is obviously such like a contractual obligation for everybody involved. But their contracts were up after Apocalypse. Fastbender, and McAvoy, and 
yeah. Lawrence came back because they wanted to make this movie. It's wild. Well, I mean, you know, like the million dollar, the multi-million dollar paychecks are probably good too. It, it is honestly, it's crazy. And and the thing about like watching this movie and watching really the X-Men movies since first class, which is so good, is that there's never the feeling that they're building towards another movie in a concrete way other than having some last second frame of, yeah. you know, the Phoenix, the spoiler, of the Phoenix Force flashing against the sky, you know, and, and as the camera pans up. That's the only kind of inkling you get that, oh, well, maybe, maybe we'll make a sequel. Whereas the Marvel movies, you always feel like we're building towards the next movie, whatever the next movie is. The solo movie is building towards the, the team-up movie, which is building towards uh, bringing some other character out forward. And these movies, it just kind of feels like, oh, if it works, we'll make another one. Yeah. But we're kind of scared. We don't know. Yeah, and I think that, you know, we talked a lot during Thrones over the years, really. You know, George Martin wrote that book with an eye towards it being unadaptable. And, you know, we don't don't need to relitigate the last season of Thrones by any means, but I think Benioff and Weiss, for the most part, proved him wrong. You know, I mean, for, for, for the majority of that series... They showed that, like, look, yeah, you may have to make some tough choices. There may be some things that fans of the books really want to see that we're just not going to include. But for the most part, getting to see the Red Wedding or getting to see what happens in Winds of Winter will make up for no Lady Stoneheart or no Young Griff or whatever. The X-Men, to me, though, that's like when I was rereading a couple of lines over the last few days uh, and leading up to going to see the movie and in the, in the aftermath of seeing the movie, and I was reading like Executioner's Song and Age of Apocalypse. Yeah, and I know hell the, yeah. Whatever the one that, like, that starts out with uh, the Joss Whedon one where it's the woman with like the giant metal head. I can't even remember what that line is. And it's like, I think it's like a Sentinel-based thing. But there are so many of these storylines that are, they seem they seem like they could only ever happen in comic books. And, you know, we look at comic books now as like, look, this is just a platform. Like, you you know, you, you these are just like a, like a way station until you get to the big screen or the small screen. But there are certain things that happen in comic books that kind of can't be translated to screen. I mean, I agree with that and I disagree with that. Just, and I, I agree with that in the sense that stuff that ha- happens in comic books and particularly X-Men comic books are just so wild. Like, uh, you know, like the Dark Phoenix saga climaxes with a intergalactic battle between like uh, these like galactic space cops and the X-Men yeah. on, in the blue area of the moon. You know what I mean? In a battle so for like, honor, right? Like, isn't it, yeah. isn't it like this weird, like it's almost like the uh, the mountain and the viper, like where they're like trial by combat and whoever wins on the moon is going to like win the soul of Jean Grey. And it's so, so weird. On the other hand, like uh, the MCU just pulled off like a massive multi timeline, multi galactic battle with Earth's heroes versus Thanos that honestly is the most comic book thing I've ever seen like, I guess on you're right. screen. Yeah. I really think what it is is you've got to just plug into what the essence of like the characters and the team are. And to me, like the X Men are young, they're in school. You know, they're barely, and the leaders of them are barely out of school. And what comes with that? They don't follow rules well. They're horny. Like, that's a thing that's never really been translated, maybe first class a little bit, never really translated to the screen. Like, and what I think made 
the X-Men titles so thrilling, like when I was reading them in middle school and stuff, is like, these are kids with like hormones and they're horny and they're, and that like comes out in weird fights and tensions and like uh, love triangles. And then when they go into battle, they're like really not that well-oiled of a team, but somehow they eke it out because of like the fact that they're, they have like a really deep friendship and, and familial bonds with each other. Like when Jean Grey is like, I have to protect my family now at the end of that movie, that's supposed to, that's supposed to be like a hammer line. And yeah. it's like, I did, did nothing. Yeah. It did nothing. This probably needed to be at least two movies, if not a trilogy. You can yeah. see in the Marvel thing. And the other thing that I think the X-Men movies have always gotten wrong. And this is, again, speaks to the perhaps lack of, a Kevin Feige type figure overseeing. I mean, I know Kimberg is the architect of these movies, but without knowing yeah. like, hey, we're going to be making these movies in 2025. So we are of a place we're getting to. We know that we've got X amount of years with these actors because they're signed up right. for a certain amount of movies and they're going to be within the age realm of what these characters can be. You kind of had like a problem with that with Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen. You changed that yeah. now, but they couldn't get rid of Jackman because he was too damn popular and he wanted to make the Logan right. movie. So he's sort of hanging around. You have Days of Future Past. But one of the things that really struck me as I was rewatching these movies and it happened again in Dark Phoenix and you just never see Marvel really make these mistakes is you're never confused as to who these characters are. Like there are lots of people in the yeah. X-Men movies yeah. where you're like, is that supposed to be Richter? Is that supposed to be like, right. like, Sunspot or Jubilee, but they're only on screen for five seconds and nobody ever says yeah, their they name. Don't waste your time but with that. in the Marvel movies, like you know every single person from Mbaku yeah. up to Tony Stark. They, if you're on screen in a Marvel movie, there's a reason for it. And if you're if you're just a red shirt, if you're just a Chitari warrior, nobody worries about you. You know what I mean? I 100 percent know what you mean. That's and that's also a kind of a thing that's been kind of a theme of the X-Men movies since the Singer days, where you know they get these shots of uh, young mutants running through the halls of Xavier's Academy be like, oh, is that, that's Toad or something. Um, yeah, but the, the Marvel movies don't do that. If they're going to introduce a character, then you're going to get time with that character. Otherwise, they're not going to waste your time with that. And it makes them for a much more lean experience. I, I don't think it's a spoiler at all to say that the Dazzlers in this movie yeah. for five seconds. Yeah. And it's like, okay, great. That you know, like that doesn't really add to my experience of the movie, other than to say, okay, you guys know who Dazzler is. Congratulations. So they, speaking of the Marvel thing, now you've got New Mutants is in a shelf somewhere in a in a room yeah. in Fox, and like they're going to try and fix who that. Knows, who knows if it ever comes out? There's even been rumors that they might dump that on Hulu. Like there's been all sorts yeah. of stuff. I think they're I think they're reshooting it now. I'm not sure, but you know, we are all presuming that within, I would guess five, six years, the X-Men are going to show up in the MCU movies. And yeah. that the they will they could arguably take over for, say, Guardians as the next kind of group of the X of, of the Marvel universe. Now my question to you is with all the things that the Singer movies got right or wrong and that the Vaughn movie got right or wrong and that the Kinberg movies since then have gotten right or wrong. Are we sure that Marvel is going to be the right place for that? Because exactly what you're talking about with the horniness, I would also yeah. mention the X-Men are rarely getting along. Like Marvel made they, one they movie the about time. them not getting along, like yeah. Civil War, but like the X-Men are always like 
you stole my girlfriend or you have a bad yeah. idea about how to run the mutant race or I'm actually partial to Magneto, but you captured me and made me work for you. There's lots right. of different like groups underneath the X-Men, like X-Factor and X-Force that have different allegiances. Do you think that the MCU is eventually going to be able to assimilate the X-Men? And if they do, do you think that something will be lost in translation? I, I think that some of the rough edges simply because it's Disney, has to come off. That said, the thing that gives me hope about it is weirdly uh, Winter Soldier and the way that Marvel was just like, guess what? S.H.I.E.L.D. are actually Nazis. Yeah. The fact that they were able to do that, I think, gives... You know, because the thing about the X-Men is, as Sean put it in the big picture and you're, during your conversation, is they're kind of punk rock. Yeah. You know, it's like the Avengers are like the Beatles, to, to spin this metaphor out, like, or like, you know, they're squeaky clean Boy Scouts, and the X-Men are like the stoners who are, you know, smoking joints over by the bleachers. Yeah. They are the, ex, the Avengers are like billionaires and gods and geniuses, and the X Men are yes. like freaks. They're like we're yes, outcasts of society, runaways, orphans. Parents didn't want them. Parents tried to kill them. Like all kinds of stuff. Like Wolverine that. So is basically think, the Frankenstein monster. Yeah. So I think that there's a really interesting there's a really interesting dynamic to be had with this group of heroes that are also kind of a anti the structure that is uh, that is kind of embodied by the Avengers. I think that that would be really interesting if they can pull it off. You know, like they, these are kind of like two groups that really, though they're both heroes and interested in, in, in helping people and saving the world, really wouldn't necessarily get along because, you know, the various weaponries and android killers and things that are used to hunt the X-Men and the mutants can always be traced back to, you know, these governmental structures that also support the Avengers. So it's just, it's, it could be, I think it could be super interesting if they can pull that dynamic off of like this more scruffy punk rock, uh, outcast team to give you contrast to the squeaky clean kind of like, uh, uh, good guy thing that the Avengers give you. I think that would so cool if they can pull it off. I think it would be hard, but I think it would be incredibly cool. No, I think you're right. I, it's going to be fascinating to see how big the Disney tent gets over the years and, and, and yeah. whether or not they loosen up some strictures where it comes to what characters can do. I mean, I think even today, like you can't have a Disney character that smokes, which is fa right. fair enough. Like, I guess I understand that, but a Wolverine that doesn't smoke a cigar is kind of hard to imagine. Do you know what I mean? It's like a, it's yeah. a, totally a part of his character. So the, the idea of them kind of mixing into this very quippy, everything's cool, everybody looks good, everybody's pretty happy about who they've wound up becoming in their life world of the MCU where you've got these like bronze gods versus like, I'm a killing machine who's, claws are basically like arthritis you know like right and, yeah. and that everything about me like cyclops isn't cool cyclops actually can't control the fact that his eyes bleed lasers right and wolverine's like but my adamantium claws were actually created by a guy who was like kicked out of tony stark's dad's like laboratory yeah. you know like yeah there, it's all connected in that way i do think that they're i think that they're 
I could make a prediction. I think the way they introduced the mutants is basically like the Avengers just didn't know about them. There's no psychic characters really in, in Marvel, right. the MCU. There's no like Charles Xavier type character. So I think they could just say, oh, Xavier's just been like hiding all these people. And now they've kind of gone, they've gone from underground to mainstream. That's pretty interesting. Right. The thing that makes me so excited is just the idea of treating those characters over the course of like 10 years of movies. I mean, if they can get the casting right, if they can find the right shepherd, whether it starts out with a director who then turns the reins over or whatever it is, like to find that right combination of of cast and behind the scenes talent and then let it kind of play itself out over seven to 10 years, that'd be awesome. Because like, honestly, in 10 years, I'll watch the Dark Phoenix saga again if they get it right. It's wild to watch Dark Phoenix, and I'm I find myself sitting there going, "Man, is Last Stand better?" Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> and Last Stand is like considered one of the worst superhero movies. I know, uh, really terrible. Like Cyclops dies off screen. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Jason, thank you so much for calling in, man. We will be in touch soon. Whenever they, whenever the the next Dark Phoenix leaks come out, I'll definitely have you back on. Yeah. Thanks for having <laughs> Later, me. Later, man. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by City on a Hill, the new drama series from Showtime starring Kevin Bacon and Aldous Hodge. City on a Hill airs Sundays at 9 p.m. only on Showtime. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the movie Yesterday in theaters June 28th. Yesterday from Danny Boyle and Universal Studios imagines a world where only one person remembers the existence of the Beatles. The movie stars Lily James, Ed Sheeran, Kate McKinnon, and newcomer Hamish Patel, when the trailer first dropped, we at The Ringer, we have this you know, internal communication system, Slack, and we had a lot of questions. We were pinging each other. A lot of, lot of the channels were hot with questions about what would happen to the world as we know it without the Beatles. Many of those questions we still have today, and today in partnership with Universal, we want to discuss one in particular, which is essentially what would happen if you woke up tomorrow and you heard a Beatles song, and you had never heard one before, the Beatles never happened, and a relatively classic rendition of a Beatles song just was on the radio and in stores and somebody was like on YouTube being like, I, I wrote this song, Hey Jude, or I wrote this song, Happiness is a Warm Gun. Like, what would the reaction be to that? Well, it's almost inconceivable to imagine everything that happened after the Beatles. So it's wild to even imagine, like, would we even understand, would rock even be as popular as it was, you know, as it is, Without the Beatles, would rock be something that kind of got cycled through and then in the 60s it ran out of gas and something else came along? Like, it's almost impossible to, to, to guess. But just from a pure songwriting standpoint, the thing, the re- reason I think the Beatles resonate is because of those melodies and because of the simplicity and beauty of like the messages of the songs. I think that that would translate immediately. Like, I think that people would be really blown away by Hey Jude or Blackbird or any pick any classic Beatles song, Drive My Car, even if it sounds unlike other stuff that's on the radio, the pop music architecture of those songs is timeless. So I, I think that they would they would hit it off. But who knows? Maybe yesterday we'll answer this question to see if the movie addresses the existence like what would happen if the Beatles came back in 2019 or started in 2019? Plus all the other questions we have, watch the trailer and catch yesterday in theaters on June 28th.